everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of um, recorded sessions of former intelligence officers who have great stories to tell. And today we have a very special guest who I know has some very interesting stories. To help me with today's uh, program, I'm inviting back uh, David Priest, who's well known to the AFIO audience. David is a former senior um, CIA analyst and PTB briefer. He's written a great book about the PDB, which we presented on this program a few months ago, called The President's Book of Secrets. And he's now with the National Security Institute at George Mason University. Um, David, welcome back to AFIO Now. Thank you very much, Jim. I, I have an update for you, which is just last week, I shifted affiliations and I'm now a senior fellow at the Michael V. Hayden Center for Intelligence at George Mason University. And as well as continuing at the Lawfare Institute. So affiliations change, but my joy being with you for AFIO now is the same. Uh, it is my pleasure to be able to share with you today the insights and wit of Carmen Medina, one of my favorite people from working at CIA back in the day. Uh, Carmen held a number of positions in and around analysis and in management, up to and including work in the front office of the Directorate of Intelligence in her 32-year career. But just as interesting as what she's done since then, working as a consultant, working on cognitive diversity issues, and thinking about how people can make positive change in a workforce without losing their creativity and their sense of humor. And we'll get to that as we get through this conversation. Um, Carmen, let's start off with your career starting off. You came in, if I recall correctly, you came in and started working in the Ops Center. Tell me how you got recruited, why you joined CIA, and how your experience was a little bit bumpy in those early years. Sure. Thank you, David. Uh, and Jim, it's a pleasure to be here. I uh, was going to Georgetown pursuing the Master's in Foreign Service Program. And that's a pretty regular stop for the CIA recruiter. They showed up in the fall and they were offering the internship program for the summer where you spend, you get a 90 day contract, you're fully cleared and you're an intern. And for whatever reason, I got hired and I spent the summer there in the Ops Center. Back then they would bring us really, we were kids into the, into the 24 hour watch a job that's always very difficult to fill because it's so hard to get people to do that kind of shift work. At the end of the 90 days, they said, we like you. We'd like you to stay. We'll offer you a permanent job. And I said, well, I'm going to Georgetown to get a job like this. So why would you turn it down? So as a result, I'm, I think, two incompletes short of my master's uh, at Georgetown because I tried to do both the whole time. And uh, after about a year and a half in the Ops Center working the Middle East and Africa desk, which was great, primarily because lots of stuff happened in the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa. So you were a busy watch officer. The Africa division of the Directorate of Intelligence asked if me to come up and become an analyst. And, and so I did. And um I, I took to the work really well. I, I've always been a, uh, thanks to my debate training, I think, I've always been a, a uh, 
precise and fairly quick writer and thinker. And I think that's really highly prized in the Directorate of Intelligence. And um, I spent, uh, I don't know, six or seven years as an analyst. And then I eventually became a manager, which was really a useful thing because after a while, analysis began to bore me. I know there are some people who like to do the same thing over and over again, but that's what it felt like to me. And But being a manager, I felt, was a much more diverse kind of thing. And being a manager of analysis allowed me to stay in touch with that thinking part of it, which I really liked, but also have a lot more opportunity to be with people. And if you don't like people, you should never, ever become a manager. Let me, uh, let me go back half a step there, Carmen, because you skipped over um, a lot of your analytic experience, but particularly as it relates to becoming a team chief and then to moving into other management positions, what did you think of your management? What, what was your learning curve like as an analyst, learning from good and bad managers, and how did you carry that forward when you became a team chief? You know, that's a, that's a great question. I was very lucky. My first three managers really were excellent managers. My first manager in the ops center was a uh, DO, Director of Operations Reports Officer. And you can imagine that his career maybe wasn't going so well in the Directorate of Operations for him to end up being a senior duty officer in the watch office. But I learned a lot about life from him and sort of how, how to handle disappointment and how to think about work-life balance, which was really important to Bob. And then my next two uh, managers in the Directorate of Intelligence were fantastic uh, I don't know if you want me to name names. I'm happy to name them both because they were great. Mike Barry, who uh, eventually was in charge of all our analysis on Afghanistan, you know, right at the beginning when the Soviets were there. And I mean, I don't know if you rewatch Charlie Wilson's war, it's possible Mike Barry is hidden in it as a as a as a character. And then uh, another uh, great officer, John Allen. And I learned from John Allen and both of these had cut their teeth working on Vietnam and Southeast Asia. That was their background. And I remember John Allen giving me a wonderful piece of advice where I was writing an analytic piece where I, I just sort of felt that everything would get resolved by a certain date. He came to me and he said, Carmen, you know what I learned in Laos? You never run out of bullets. And I said, well, what does that mean, John? He goes, when I worked on Vietnam or Laos, one of those, I was tracking the military supplies that the guerrillas were getting. And I felt that on a date certain, they were gonna you know, not be able to fight anymore. They'd be out of bullets. And my branch chief at the time said to me, John, you never run out of bullets. And I've, that, that has stayed with me for a very long time. And I had a bad, I think my fourth or fifth managers, team chiefs were, were bad uh, or I didn't like them. And they tended to be micromanagers which I feel is very difficult for people who are trying to think. Thinking is not, cannot be reduced, I don't believe, to a, you know, linear steps. And uh, one of them was a hoverer. He would hover behind you while you were supposedly writing. And I, 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 I had to lie to him to get him literally off my back. 
so yeah, I learned a lot. I learned about sharing forward everything you know. I learned about not being a micromanager, and uh, and I certainly learned, and I think I'm very lucky, kind of the very old school style of being a DI analyst from my managers who were such veterans of the Vietnam War. Let's share with everybody another experience you had, a story you told me years ago that has stuck with me and made me laugh ever since. Uh, as I recall, you were a relatively new analyst, and it was your first time or one of your first times writing an article that was getting pulled into the president's daily brief. And this was back when Bob Gates would have his uh, every evening meeting to call up the analysts to talk through the pieces and make sure that he thought they were up to speed. Um, you didn't necessarily have a bad experience with it, but somebody else did. Tell us what happened right. at that meeting. Well, we were up in the conference room, uh, the operations center conference room, as I recall, and Bob Gates was the DDI and he had uh, a weekly, or, sorry, a daily, I'd say maybe six p.m. meeting where he would go over all the drafts and the analysts who had drafts that were in the hopper for the PDB were advised to make themselves available for that meeting. It was also the holiday season. It was the week where everybody was having their holiday parties. And so I was actually in the room waiting for the, uh, I was probably working on the Middle East at that time and waiting my turn for Gates to read my piece. And it was a, a bit of performance art, you know, it was kind of like read out loud and, and which is always a good thing to read your prose out loud. You hear things that you don't, your mind might not register. And the piece before me that he's considering is a deeply technical piece about, I think, a miniature submarine of some kind. And so the kind of piece that definitely people have problems with. Gates stumbles on something technical and he goes, well, we're asked the question. He goes, where's the analyst? People are kind of looking around. Where's the analyst? And so finally somebody says, well, he's at, and I think at the time they actually said he's at the Christmas party and Bob Gates sort of straightened himself up and he said, doesn't he know that you don't go to Christmas parties when you have a PDB piece? And I'm like, I'm here. I'm here. I'm ready to answer any question you may have. So gives you a, a real insight into Gates, who, uh, of course, like everyone else, I, I tremendously respect his career. And uh, he admits that he learned a lot during his career. Let's go back to your management uh, side. So you're a team chief and you've been very open and self-reflective on your management progression itself. What did you learn by doing as a team chief and then moving into other positions about your own personality and how it applied to leading people in that environment? Well, you know, when I first became a team chief, I and I was young. I don't even think I was 30 when they uh, asked me to be a team chief. And I was intimidated by being asked to be a team chief and remember thinking, well, I'm going to have to act differently than I normally act. I'm going to have to act like a team chief. And I remember doing that for about two weeks and feeling absolutely miserable and also feeling not effective. And I thought, you know, uh, that's, 
if, if this is how I'm going to succeed as a manager, well, I'm not going to be a manager. So I, I made a conscious decision. I remember going home thinking, I'm just going to be myself from now on. And I think like the next week I brought in my Nerf basketball set into my office and hung the hoop over the door and uh, did a whole bunch of just my normal have fun. I think having fun is a huge missing element in non-productive workplaces. You know, what's the advantage of having that Nerf basketball set in your office? The people who work for you come into your office and spend 20 minutes having uh, an informal and normal and natural conversation with you. And it's that kind of banter that creates trust among people. You don't create trust between people by saying you should trust me. You create trust by acting in a way and familiarity that leads them to trust you. So I learned very early on that I had to be myself. But I also learned as the years progressed that my personality was quite different from the normal personality in the Directorate of Intelligence. I mean, I think anybody would say that who knew me. And um, that sometimes I had to tone it down, that there were people for whom more structure is very important. And I had to figure out how to, you know, either be more that way around them or particularly when you become a more senior manager and you have a deputy, you can balance yourself out. But I, I really enjoyed being uh, a manager and a leader. And I found, and this might be, I might be fooling myself, but I, I found that the more strategic the decisions that I had to make, the better it suited whatever abilities I had. I'm not good at details. I'm sort of task phobic. So term I've invented. But uh, but I love thinking about anticipating what might be the next thing. And I would just say anticipation is another huge, important quality for good leaders and often lacking and often not really emphasized. Right. Let's talk about one other trait uh, that you thought was the trait of a good senior manager. As I recall, when you became a senior intelligence manager, you had the opportunity to have a management coach, a personal coach for the first oh, time. Oh, yeah, right. And, uh, and, and, and I think you, you told your coach that now that you were moving into a senior management role, you had to become meaner and you wanted the coach's help becoming more mean. Yes. Talk through what was going through your head, what the that's, coach said to you great, and where you ended story, up. Uh, David, and thank you for remembering it. Yes. So I, I, you know, was now, I think, in the senior intelligence service. And I think uh, at the time when you first got in, they, they gave you an advantage or they gave you an opportunity to have six months of coaching. And I raised my hand. And uh, so the coach said, first thing is, what do you want out of this? And I had been observing people and was noticing that some managers were much less sentimental about things than others, that they, you know, I would struggle with a decision that I knew would be difficult on a personal level for some people. And other managers seemed to go, hey, full steam ahead, no problem. Not presumably not even think about it. And so I distilled that quality into I need to become meaner. I need to be a meaner if I'm going to really succeed. And so I told my coach that that's my goal. I want to become meaner. <laughs> to her credit, she goes, 
well, do you like mean people? And I said, no, I don't like mean people. She goes, well, why do you want to be a mean person? You obviously don't want to be a mean person. There's something else behind that. And we talked for a while and finally she used just the right word. You want to be more powerful. You want to project your power more effectively. And we can work on that. And that's a positive attribute you want to gain. And your problem is that you've confused being mean with being powerful. And they're not the same thing. And I was that was a real breakthrough moment for me because I think I would never have done as well as I eventually did as a leader if I had not sort of dis, disconnected those two concepts. And, you know, of course, women have a lot of problem uh, projecting power. Certainly women of my generation are notorious for that. And, um, and often they say ethnic uh, minorities have trouble uh, projecting power or being seen as powerful in an organization. So it was a very, very valuable lesson. Talk through that a little bit more, that part about being a a woman at this time in the CIA, being a Puerto Rican coming up inside the agency. Did you have role models or people you could look to as positive or negative examples? Uh, as positive or negative examples? Those are great questions. I mean, so the the first role model that I think of immediately was Helene Boatner, who was the director of one of the precursors to to what we have now. She was the director of the Office of Political Analysis back when people thought it was a good idea to separate them all into their little domains. But she was, she was incredible. She was a very powerful woman. She projected power, uh, just in and the way she carried herself, her posture was really good. Her uh, father, I believe, had been the uh, head of the corps, the commandant of the corps at Texas A&M. And so she had that kind of military bearing. She had a great voice. Uh, and uh, she was just really powerful. So I, I, of course, really admired her. But when I joined in 78, there were very few women ahead of me that you could emulate. I mean, Helene is one, I could name a couple of others. Most of the women that were, let's say, five or 10 years ahead of me in their careers clearly had made some kinds of, some type of compromises with themselves uh, because they had, you know, they were, even though they were professional analysts, they operated more in a support role in whatever team they were in. They might be, well, ask her the question. She's a really good researcher, but then she wasn't the person who wrote the PDB, for example. So that that was, it was hard to figure out how to behave in that time. And then being a minority, I, I never was quite so aware of my ethnicity as I was of the fact that I was just a different thinker. And I, I knew that from the beginning. It is fascinating that now there's such an emphasis inside the community writ large, but especially at the agency on diversity of experience, about creativity, about trying to spur innovative thought. And yet when when you were doing that on the line, it was clearly not something that was rewarded or appreciated on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you did find a niche for yourself uh, in the 1990s. Uh, 
I recall you working on the daily economic intelligence brief for several years and then working on the senior executive intelligence brief or SEEB, uh, which evolved out of the, the National Intelligence Daily or NID, but then also on the effort to get those products and other products like it digitally available to customers when that was becoming a thing in the 1990s and publishing products when they were ready rather than on a 24-hour publication cycle to deliver to customers at their desks. I was wondering what you could share with us about that entire process across many years of trying to turn this ship of the Directorate of Intelligence, which had done the same basic model for decades, and trying to get the culture to meet customers where they were at in a digital way. Yes, that was certainly the most significant experience I, I think I had at the directorate. And by the mid-1990s, I was positive that the internet was going to change everything. I mean, I bored my friends with it. I would you know, say car dealers are going to disappear. Newspapers are going to disappear. Everything is going to be different because of the internet. Don't ask me how I came to believe that, but I was completely committed to that idea. And I felt it would change everything about knowledge organizations. And I felt that the CIA had to adapt the Directorate of Intelligence. But I was stupid at the time because I didn't realize advocating for digital technologies and the internet was a type of heresy at CIA at the time. You think of CIA, we're about secrets, we're about closed information. What was the internet about? Open information, particularly then in the mid 90s, kumbaya, happiness for everyone. Everyone knows everything. So I approached it very badly and had all sorts of issues, really derailed my career. And then finally, the, this idea of uh, the seed came along and the need to, new job came along to secure the seed because it was being leaked all the time by Jack Anderson, a name from the past. And in that job, which I eventually applied for, there was one, uh, job duty, which was to explore the use of digital technologies to see uh, if that could be used in the SEEB. And I thought, well, that's my opportunity. If I can nail the security part and get it right, I'll get the runway to pursue these other things. And luckily, and you know, with the help of a lot of friends who supported me, that's exactly what happened. Oh, colleagues at work who joined in the effort. And um, I still think the directorate and the intelligence community has a long way to go on this issue. Uh, we're still not competitive with the way information is being shared, you know, by other uh, open source domains. But at least I feel, you know, back in the late 90s, we, we made a start and, and we've been slowly going in that direction ever since. So uh, I learned a lot of lessons from that experience, how to sort of bring a heretical idea into an organization. And I eventually distilled them into a book I co-wrote with uh, uh, Lois Kelly, Rebels at Work. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's a hard thing to do 
when an organ to help an organization confront the need for theological change. Really, really difficult. But in every generation, there are organizations that must do that. And if they fail to do it, they fail. And what you and Lois point out in uh, in Rebels at Work, which I'm happy to have this copy of here, um, is that this is not unique to CIA, obviously. Oh, no. This is an issue of bureaucracy. This is an issue of people and processes that can make it very hard for people to think that they can make positive change in an organization. Um, but there are tips and practices for making sure that your voice is heard and, and not quelling that instinct to make things better just because the system says you go along to get along. Uh, what are the main practical tips people can take away from rebels at work for work in general, but specifically for the intelligence community to, to get the best out of its vibrant and diverse workforce? Right. Well, one of the things I learned, or big thing I learned when I left CIA in 2010 and started doing work in the private sector is that a lot, maybe most, of what I faulted the CIA for wasn't really unique to the CIA. It was what I call large organization disease. And uh, I don't know how large your organization has to be to be vulnerable to it, but it affects a lot of organizations. And another dynamic here, before I get to my specific advice that is worth noting, is that leaders are often incentivized, in fact, I would say almost always incentivized to keep things running smoothly. All organizations have a let's execute the plan bias. And so if you're the person who raises their hand and says, I don't know about the plan right now, uh, people, you're rocking the boat. You're not being corporate and people don't want to hear you. So with that as a backdrop, uh, some advice. Uh, first, you have to analyze your own agenda, what it is that you want to affect, the change that you want to help create. First, make sure that it's not about your ego, because if it's mostly about your ego, you're not going to succeed. Uh, and kind of second is to kind of a good test to see if it is about your ego is to gain allies and supporters. Have people with you. Don't do it alone. And if you can't gain allies and supporters, then maybe your idea isn't that good of an idea. Uh, I'm not a I'm not a grenade thrower, although people have accused me of that. But but I I object. Uh, I'm not a rule breaker, but I do believe you have to have a methodical approach to changing rules. And sometimes you have to be a little ninja about it. Uh, I think you. Uh, you know, a, a big part of gaining supporters is listening to other people. A lot of people, when they talk about what makes for a good communicator, they talk about how you talk or how you express your ideas. I think listening is the easiest way to become a good communicator is by listening to other people. Uh, I think when it's 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 often difficult to approach a change directly through the front door. So it's always a good idea to see if you can position your idea in such a way that it is consistent with the organization's goals. So you can approach it, like I call that approaching it through an adjacency. And I didn't make progress on 
the idea of publishing when ready and adapting to the digital revolution until, in fact, I began to approach the, the issue through an adjacency. In this case, security, which was an issue near and dear to the CIA. Some of those principles and ideas you've clearly developed uh, since leaving, but you had some of them in your mind when you were put in the, a different position. You were pulled up in the last decade of your career to the front office of the Directorate of Intelligence. And most often, people pulled into the deputy director position or associate deputy director, and eventually there were three. Usually, these are the senior most office directors. Uh, but that was not the case when you were pulled up. Um, you were not pulled up after running one of the largest DI area analytic offices for year after year. It's a different experience being pulled up there. And in a sense, an opportunity to put some of these ideas into practice, to try to be a change agent while being in one of the very positions that wants to keep things on track and wants to keep the boat from being rocked. Right. I would imagine that would be a combination of a very rewarding thing and a very, very frustrating experience. Talk through what it was like trying to lead the directorate with all those dynamics in mind. Well, the reason why I ended up in the directorate front office was that it was 2003, uh, 2004, we, the, we were just beginning the DNI intelligence reform. We were just getting the results of the 9-11 Commission and the Iraq WMD Commission, both of which were considered intelligence failures. And there were people who thought that the directorate needed to go in a new direction, that we really needed, you know, that, you know, the time had come to stop executing the old plan and let's create a new plan. And what I was told is when the people that came in, and this time with Porter Goss, they started talking to people in the directorate or at the agency, they found very few people, this is what they said, this is what they told me, who actually had some coherent ideas about the need for change. That most people's ideas were like, we don't need change or at most we need tinkering. And so the reason why they fleeted me up was because I actually was someone that intellectually, emotionally was committed to the idea of change. We ended up having a tremendous front office experience. I, you know, we worked, the three of us, even though we had never worked together before, uh, worked very well together, I thought. And um, I think it was from, you know, I think John Kringen, who was my boss at the time, was very much in the let's execute model. But he was also and is also a very intelligent man. And he understood the need uh, to make space for new ideas. And I think uh, I was I was like the radical in that group, but the you know, the tolerated radical. And I remember my colleague, Peter Clement, who many of you, I'm sure, know. Uh, we are not, he and I were talking and I was saying, you know, I was really excited about a concept. And Peter said to me, Carmen, you're kind of scary when you get like this. And that was actually a good lesson because I learned, OK, I, I can't be quite so evangelical. 
about my ideas or I'm going to scare people off. But I, I think the, the thing that I try to do most is stay connected to the workforce and know what they were thinking. And in fact, some of the best ideas that were implemented and started were ideas that came bottom up from the workforce, such as Intellipedia, which was something that I thought, this is a fantastic idea and we need to get it going. It's the best reform I ever was part of at CIA. And all I did was say yes to a T-14's idea. Carmen, tell us a little bit more about Intellipedia. Not everybody is familiar with it, yet it's become a, a very useful resource for so many. Well, the, thanks. The idea was, uh, this is when Wikipedia had just gotten started, that let's bring that software behind our firewall so we can use it safely. And let's create a classified intelligence encyclopedia of all the issues that matter. And I said, and when uh, the guys, uh, Sean Dennehy and Don Burke came to me with the idea and they subsequently won a Service to America award for doing so in 2009, I thought this is a great idea, but we have to do it quietly because there are actually rules on the books that, that prohibited CIA analysts from collaborating with people outside the CIA. But one of the one of the charms of bureaucracy is they create so many rules that they forget about them. So I thought this is this is so true. So I let's just begin it slowly. And in the meantime, I'll work on changing the kind of administrative structure. And uh, it was slow going. It was hard to get people to adopt it because you were not rewarded for your work on Intellipedia. You were rewarded for how many PDBs you wrote. And at one point, uh, I think this was my greatest contribution. At one point, uh, after saying yes, Sean and Don said, we're not getting enough people writing for it. You need to make it mandatory. And I said, nope, if I make it mandatory, it's going to die. It's either going to be organic and you know be worthwhile and people will support it or not. And so I think it's still very much a resource probably hasn't become what it should become precisely because people are not incentivized for doing it. It shows the power of a manager listening to and saying yes to other people's ideas. In retrospect, that's one of those decisions you can put in the good column, things that yes. generally worked out well. Um, let's close by talking about a couple of things that if you had them to do over again, you would try a different tack, things that with, with your wisdom now, you look back at and say, I should have pushed harder for this or not pushed so hard for that. Oh, that's, that's a good question. I mean, I made a lot of mistakes. Which, which ones to pick? Well, one thing that I did horribly, really, really badly was after the stint in the front office, General Hayden asked me to take on uh, culture, CIA's culture, and think about how to, how to change the culture of the CIA. And I had no idea how to do that. And I spent a lot of time spinning my wheels. And I'm not sure, even now, I don't know how that could have been done better, but I, I do know now that things like culture don't change by talking about them. Things like culture change 
as a result of the accretion of lots of little activities and actions that people take. I, I certainly would be a lot smarter about doing that now than I was then. And, and another thing that I think a, a lot about is I know when I was in the DI front office, I got a reputation for not respecting expertise, that I didn't really care or think deep expertise was important. And, you know, of course, I think deep expertise is important, but I also believe you have to balance that with uh, the kind of broad and sometimes generalist thinking that allows you to pick up new ideas. The problem with deep expertise is that you tunnel down. But obviously, I communicated that badly, and I, I need to have uh, done it differently. Carmen, as always, thanks for sharing your insights with me. And this time, thank you for sharing your insights with others through this forum. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed our conversation. Back to you, Jim. Well, not only some great stories to tell, but some very, very relevant uh, life experience and some very, very good advice. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, Carmen Medina and David Priest for a very thought-provoking and uh, interesting uh, presentation. Uh, we'll be seeing you again very soon on AFIO Now. <music>